Plan your work and work your plan. For many athletes, words like these are scripture. Permanent signposts lining the long road to success. The very act of pursuing a career in sports gives a sense of control, a sense of safety. Just stick to the plan, good things will follow. That is, until life hits you. The kind of life that happens when you're making other plans. Devastating setbacks, seemingly mundane moments, when things change unexpectedly and catch you without looking. Then the first question becomes, what's your next play? From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindsided. Mental health, sports, and life. This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. For the first time in over four years, Yoshida is beaten. And Helen Marulis of the United States has created a big upset here on the mat. An unbelievable win against one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. I remember even after I won the Olympics, like right after, I literally lost all my confidence. It was so confusing because I'm like, I, I don't know why I won. Like I had a teammate and we shared a room together and a car and a coach and we did the same training and I saw her put just as much work in. Like, I don't know why she didn't win. I don't know why I won. I don't know if it was this training or this coach or this. And then, so I started questioning everything and I really basically lost all my confidence after winning the Olympics. On this episode of Blindsided, we welcome Helen Maroulis. Helen is Olympic gold medalist in women's wrestling, the first ever for the United States. She's also a three-time world champion. After reaching the pinnacle of her career, she suffered a severe concussion. The effects revealed themselves as time passed. It changed her a lot, mentally and emotionally. But Helen was determined to heal. She talks with Diane and I about her struggles with mental illness, losing all of her confidence right after she won the gold, and why her biggest accomplishment is her return to wrestling, this time with a new perspective. She won a second medal this past Olympics in Tokyo. It was a bronze, and it's the one she's most proud of. Here's Helen Maroulis on Blindsided. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of a kid you were? You know, as a, a little girl, what kind of person were you? I, as a little girl, I was extremely shy. Any sport that I started playing, the instructors or the teachers would ask my mom not to bring me back because I didn't like being watched. And so I would just shut down and stare at the floor and cry. I was very shy around people. Uh, but with my brothers, I was definitely rambunctious. And, you know, I would watch my brother go to his baseball practice. And I guess I would ask if I could also sprint the bases just to see where I stood. So I, I think the competitiveness, as long as I was really engaged in that, kind of made me zone out the world and forget about being seen and, and being uncomfortable with that. So talk a little bit, if you would, about your early wrestling life. And I know it didn't happen that you joined a wrestling club right away. Can you talk about wrestling at home? <laughs> yeah, so wrestling actually started with my dad when he 
came over to the United States, he was getting bullied for being an immigrant and, you know, was, just took up wrestling and fell in love with it. He wanted to pursue it. He got scholarships to university, but um, his family was very poor and they couldn't afford it. So he basically just stayed back and eventually got into construction to help my grandparents out. And then, you know, flash forward when he had kids, they missed baseball signups. And so for that year, my dad just decided to put both my brothers in wrestling and my mom would take us to practices. And uh, the coach came up and told my mom that my little brother was too small. There weren't enough kids on the team for him. And so she would have to wait and bring him back another year. And my mom didn't want to do that. So she just told me to take my shoes off and jump in there and like be his practice partner and his dummy and kind of like a stand-in. And after two weeks of all the hard work and the push-ups and the sprints, I went to my parents and I said, hey, this isn't fair. Like my brothers get to compete and I don't. So my parents, knowing my track record of being super shy and shutting down, said, okay, we'll make you a deal. You can wrestle one match. And if you win that match, you can continue wrestling. And they didn't think I was going to step on the mat. And uh, I, I did. <laughs> and that was the only match I won all year. I, I was one in 30 that year, but I got to continue wrestling. I love that story. That's fantastic. How was it to be wrestling your brothers? Definitely way easier when they were closer in size <laughs> to me. But no, I, I enjoyed it. It was fun. I have a lot of memories of us always in the backyard and it would just always turn into like king of the mat or, you know, who, who's going to win and, you know, what moves we knew. Do you think that they had a role in, in your wrestling career and how good you got? Yeah, I, I think that that's interesting because my brothers and I were on the same team when we were uh, kids in the intramural league. And then when, after like two years of that, you bump up to Beltway, which was like the intermediate league. And my brothers were going to this one club, but that coach did not like women's wrestling. He basically wouldn't, wouldn't accept me. And then finally he did let me come to a practice and he just told his three best guys to like, just basically pound on me until I quit and to make sure that I don't come back. And so I was just oblivious. I just thought, oh, wow, intramural, like intermediate league is really difficult. Um, but my mom saw what was going on and she knew that this was going to be the case at this league. And so she actually, my brothers would still ride with their friends and go to that league. And then my mom would take me all the way to Mount Airy, which was like an hour away to this other league with a really good wrestling coach who initially didn't want me there at first, but then like he, he came around and, and he was super supportive and a really big role in my, in my wrestling. So, and then my, my bro older brother went off to military school for high school and my younger brother, um, we were on the team for a year or two together. And then I left early to train with only women and he stayed back in high school. So, and then they stopped after high school. So we didn't really have that many experiences together, but when we were younger, I think it was definitely fun to have the whole family do an activity. And it's nice now knowing that they, they understand it, they understand the sport and what it takes. And so I can talk to them about that if I need. How do you think that the challenges you had early in your life with being accepted as a woman who loved to wrestle, but not being able to find people, other women that you could wrestle with? So it sounds like you, you faced a fair amount of sexism as you were growing up. Can you talk about what that was like and how you think it's impacted you over the years? Yeah, so the interesting thing for me for the longest time, and I don't know if this is just how my brain is, but I, I guess I don't remember like how bad it, it was at times as much as my mom does. And I think maybe it's apparent it's harder to sit back and watch someone you love go through it. Whereas for me, I maybe was just oblivious half the time, or I just, I honestly loved wrestling so much that that love for the sport over kind of overrode anything else that was going on. And everything else just felt like 
an obstacle not to dwell on, but just like, how do I fix this and get this out of my way so I can keep doing what I love to do? So, you know, when it was coaches that wouldn't accept me or when it was guys on the team that would make comments or treat me a certain way or insinuate that I was there for the wrong reasons or parents yelling names at me, I just was like, okay, this is just something that I don't need to deal with, don't want to deal with. How do I minimize this? So I just started like dressing like a boy, acting like a boy, just trying to blend in. Like the more I can just fit in, the less attention I'll draw and the more I can just do what I want to do. And then I think as I got older, I started to realize like, no, I I deserve space here and women deserve space here. And we don't have to change that part of ourselves in order to belong because this sport isn't just for men and technique isn't just for men. Technique doesn't have a gender, you know? So I really was like, I'm going to be the very best wrestler I can be. And you can say that you don't like women and you can say that you don't think I should be here, but you're not going to say that I'm not a good wrestler. You're not going to say that my double leg's not technical or not good because I'm going to make sure that it is. And you, and I'll make sure that like, you can't say that. And I don't think I had that kind of confidence when I was younger. I think it was more just subconscious and doing my best to be able to like survive in, in the sport and be able to like keep getting good coaching. And I think I always felt that I needed to hold myself to a way higher standard than the boys listen to everything that the coach says and and do what they ask and do extra, be, be responsible because, you know, the guys can screw up and it's like, whatever. But I felt like if I screw up, then it's, you know, you're, you're off the team because you didn't really belong here to begin with. You described yourself as a young person as being sort of goofy and silly and, and shy, but not tough. But what I hear in your voice and the way you describe it is a pretty tough cookie do you think you were tough when you were young or has that come from the challenges you faced? I don't think I was tough when I was young. And a lot of parents, when their daughters join wrestling, they put a very big, like kind of overemphasis on being tough. And, and I just tell parents all the time, like, you don't have to be tough to start wrestling and, and wrestling can help develop that and really overcoming any obstacle or challenge in any arena will help you to develop that toughness and that resilience. And I think more than anything, the love for wrestling probably drove me to become tough because if you really love something, you just, you really want to find a way to do it. And, and I've been in other areas where I wish I could do something or I wish I wasn't so shy in uh, like dancing, but that love for it didn't override it to the point where it was going to get done no matter what. Did you find when you got into the ring, I guess you just would feel almost better about yourself? Like your self-esteem rises, you just, this is where people love you. And was that kind of your sanctuary? In some ways, but but not really in the sense that I think feeling maybe weird or different or like I didn't really fit in, you know, just in general, wrestling was the one thing that demanded all of my attention and all of my presence. And then in that present moment are just endless possibilities to just create moves and counter moves. And for me, wrestling really was art. It was just painting basically with my body. And I think I got lost in that. And I loved that. And I loved competition. I didn't really have parents that, not my own parents. I mean, I didn't have um, spectators that loved, you know, loved you. It was more, let's all flock to the mat and watch the girl wrestle. And like, let's see how the girl does. And half the people want you to win just because you're a girl and the other half want you to lose because you're a girl. And so I think that polarity teaches you at a very young age, like this is a little bit fickle. And um, I mean, as I got older and especially with like social media more into like probably high school that, that uh, I mean, high school, college, that probably affected me more. But when I was younger, I just remember 
thinking that this is the one place where I'm doing something and I'm not paying attention to if I'm watched. And so that shyness doesn't come out. I'm just in such a present moment. And that might be because at the beginning I wasn't watched because no one paid attention to the girl. And so I really found my freedom and my joy to create and express in in that. I have to, well, I'm in Vancouver right now, Helen, and so I do have to do a little plug here for Simon Fraser University. Yeah. What, what brought you to SFU? Yeah, so Canada, they don't have Olympic training centers, so a lot of times the elite athletes will stay at the university that they went to and continue their training. And so Simon Fraser University had a really good wrestling team, and they had a lot of Olympians and Olympic coaches that lived in, and trained there. And so I wanted to go to a big school. And I also uh, wanted to wrestle and, and get a good education. And so Canada felt like the place to go for that. I did one year um, at a Baptist college in the US and about two months into the season, the head coach decided that the women don't deserve mat time and they don't need it as much as the men. And so we just didn't have practices anymore. We had to start driving to a high school and like renting their room. So it was just like, I didn't want that anymore. And I just didn't, felt like Canada was more progressive and had, had more to offer. You have had an incredible career, but early on, one of those great challenges that many athletes face, yours was really significant with not making that 2012 team and then being asked to help the person who beat you to actually prepare for the Olympics. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and how it impacted you? Yeah. So I, uh, I was 19 at the time I had qualified my weight class for the Olympics for team USA. And then, you know, I just had to qualify myself for the USA spot. Uh, I was sitting out till the finals. I had won the nationals. I hadn't lost any American in over a year. And I ended up, you know, losing to a woman, Kelsey in the finals and it was devastating. And so that Olympic cycle, which was the only time that they've done it before. And since they decided to bring the number twos, uh, the alternates as the training partners for the number ones, just in case the ones got hurt, then the twos would be there to fill in. And it just wasn't a great idea because, you know, sometimes you're just like, not like super close or you just, you want to bring someone else. I'm sure she wanted anyone but me there. And I didn't really want to be there particularly myself, but it was, um, it was such a good challenge for my character and my growth. And I remember just being really depressed all summer. And I think my identity was very wrapped up in wrestling by that time. And, uh, that was just kind of the rude awakening of like, do you really want to pursue sport this way? And I remember a coach, you know, saw that I was, I was really hurting and pulled me aside and said, Hey, look, like, Hey, you had a bad trials. It is what it is, but it's not about you right now. And we all know that you're, you're going to do it one day, but what you do as the number two is going to speak a lot more than how you are as the number one. And so like, what, how do you want to be kind of like remembered or known for? And so, you know, the, my strength coach taught me this, uh, Charles Poliquin uh, a long time ago that you can't outperform your subconscious. You know, that was, that that was probably um, a, a big piece of what that was. And after 2012, I remember I swore off wrestling, swore I was done. I was retiring. You know, I was like, this doesn't bring me joy. And, um, I uh, ended up competing in the world championships later that year and took second, won my first um, world medal and was still just as unhappy because it still felt like I was riding the highs and lows of winning. And I just didn't see how I was going to be able to do that. And so I just really sat down and prayed about it and and kind of journeyed with God and just said, I'll give you these next four years, whatever you ask of me, I'll do it. 
And, but like, I just want to, after 2016, I just want to leave without regret. Like, I didn't really think I was going to make the team or win. I, I just wanted to pursue four more years and make sure there was nothing that left to give that I didn't give. And then I just, I wanted peace of mind to walk away. Um, I really felt the lesson for me was like, when are you just going to believe that it's you? Like, when are you going to believe that, that you can do this, that you don't need this like special coach or this special routine or special training? It sounds, Helen, like you have something of an imposter syndrome, which is exceedingly common, especially among younger people. Do you know what I mean by saying that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know so, yeah. Someone's going to so, find out. They're going to know I don't belong here. I don't deserve this. I'm not as smart or skilled. Mm-hmm. And uh, really... Is that the experience you had over those years that you felt like it wasn't you, you needed all of this around you? Yeah, one, 100%. And I think the people around me knew that I felt that way too. And I think it was just like, well, we're getting results this way. So let's not change it because to do it the the real way is probably a lot more hard work and maybe some deeper soul work. And, you know, uh, maybe, and maybe I didn't fully know it at the time, but I mean, even... I remember even after I won the Olympics, like right after I literally lost all my confidence, which wasn't that much that before to begin with, because I was putting it in external things, but you know, I was really trusting in God and my faith. And then after it was so confusing, because I'm like, I, I don't know why I won. Like I had a teammate and we shared a room together in a car and a coach and we did the same training. And I saw her put just as much work in like, I don't know why she didn't win. I don't know why I won. I don't know if it was this training or this coach or this. And then, so I started questioning everything and I really basically lost all my confidence after winning the Olympics. Wow, Corey, that was shocking to me. Helen lost all of her confidence after winning a gold at the Olympics. I thought, you know, It would be just the opposite. She'd just proven that she's the best in the world, and it just didn't make sense to me. Does it make sense to you? It makes a ton of sense to me. There's always pressure to win again. And a lot of athletes, when they win the first time, they think they were lucky. They think, you know, they wrestled somebody that was the wrong person, that was easier, that anybody else could have beaten. And when you get to the top of the mountain, people expect you to do it again and again, and again, and it brings a ton of pressure. And if you don't think that you're that person and you get some imposter syndrome, I think it's really difficult to stay at the top of the mountain. Now everybody wants to beat you. Imposter syndrome, the idea of it has been around for a very long time, and it's almost always mentioned in association with really high-achieving women. But I've come to understand that men and women— struggle with imposter syndrome. And it's interesting how people who, it's usually people who are really high achieving, they're excellent, high performers, academically, professionally, athletically, but they actually don't think they're that good, that bright. They think that they fooled everyone and they worry that they're going to be found out. What's Important about the idea of imposter syndrome is syndrome makes it sound like it's an illness. And I don't want to pathologize this because it's actually very common. And you yourself experienced it. I experienced it. So it's not a disorder. But when you understand that you're not alone in those feelings, that many, many people experience them, it sort of normalizes the experience and it makes you feel like, okay, I'm not other than, I'm not that different than everyone else and helps you get your thoughts around, okay, other people feel 
like they're going to get caught out, that they're feeling like they're fooling everyone. And it really helps to, I think, lift the load. But it's not a disorder. It's a common psychological experience. It's the same thing as, why do people love me? Why do people like what I do? Corey, there's a difference, though, and I'm so glad you brought that up. There is a difference between imposter syndrome, being really good at something and not believing you're that good and you're going to get caught out, and some of the things that happen when you're depressed, the way your brain can sometimes say you're no good, you're hopeless, you're worthless, and those are different things. And that's why it's really important to separate out what we call imposter syndrome which is really common with successful people. And some of the ways that you think when you're depressed or you have OCD and you have this repeated thought going on, sometimes really negative or, or scary or unpleasant, those are two different things. Imposter syndrome is a way of thinking that lots of people experience. Being told by your brain that you're hopeless, useless, worthless, or any other mean thing like that, that's a different story. And that often associated with depression or other mental illnesses. I'll give you my example because my imposter syndrome was I'm in medical school. I've gotten into pharmacy school. I'm in medical school, and I don't believe that I'm smart enough to be there, that people are going to find out that I'm an imposter. I don't belong here, and someone else should have that spot. There was no evidence to support that. It was just, how could I possibly be here? This doesn't make sense. And so that's why it's really important to separate those two things out. Helen was feeling this deflation and uneasiness. But honestly, that wasn't showing on the mat at all. After her gold, she won her third world championship in 2017 in Paris. And the next year, she decided to fly out to India and join an up-and-coming pro wrestling league. So I did a pro league in India, and it was, it was real, fairly new for a couple of years. I didn't know much about it. Um, had some teammates that went, and they said it was okay, but kind of disorganized. And so I, I went over there with just uh, me and my coach, and I got a concussion in the first match. I got hit between the eyes, and but I didn't know. I thought, you know, maybe I was jet lagged, or I had gone thumb surgery like a couple months before. So I thought maybe I'm just out of shape and. Um, I thought maybe I broke my nose. I, I, I didn't really feel great. So I rested a couple days. Then we had our second match, felt really off again. So I thought I was starting to get sick. So then I rested a few more. And by the third match, I knew something wasn't right. So um, I called this concussion specialist that I had seen in 2015 for like a, a minor concussion. And he just said, you, you definitely shouldn't wrestle. And then I called um, sports medicine staff and they said, well, you know, wait a week and you can come back. And they did the scat test for me over FaceTime. And then eventually I asked for a doctor in India the next day. And the doctor was trying to say that I didn't have a concussion. And I just said, okay, put that in writing. And he said, we don't do that here. And I said, well, you're going to need to put something in writing in case I, I get seriously hurt because this doesn't add up. And so he said, okay, well you have concussion like symptoms. So, you know, we'll, we'll give you this medicine. And it was like anti-nausea medicine, just a bunch of drugs. So I was just super out of it, sleeping all day. And then didn't really wrestle most of the league. They just asked me to wrestle the last two matches and I would tape cotton balls in my ear and hide in the bathroom. And then my coach would come get me when it was time to wrestle. So I just had no idea that wrestling on a concussion. I mean, that sounds dumb, but it kind of, you just, I mean, I remember being concussed. I mean, back to imposter syndrome. I remember being um, in India and telling my coach, like, I really feel like I'm crazy. What if I'm not even concussed? What if I just made this up because I'm upset that I lost? 
like, what if this is just making an excuse, which I don't make excuses, but I, I literally thought that that's what I was doing. So it was just such a whirlwind. And then when I came back to the US, it was um, two, three months of recovery and prism glasses and um, noise canceling headphones and then vestibular training, ocular training. And, you know, and then I saw the concussion specialist and he was like, yeah, your personality might not ever come back to normal. Can you talk a bit about your personality? Because how did it change? It sounded like, and I'll just reading a little bit about you, you were saying, you know, I used to be quite emotional. Then I became really direct, logical, but it also sounded like pretty irritable. Mm -hmm. So you had different emotions and and your emotions didn't fit your experience. So you weren't feeling normal emotions. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So normally I'm very emotional person, very, very feelings oriented. And when I got the concussion, it was like instant switch. Like I was super, super logical and calculated. Like my coach would come say something to me and I'd be like, nope, that doesn't make sense. I'm not, not doing that by like, it was just like no emotion attached. No, like, whereas before I'd be like, oh, okay, if you want me to, I will like, hope you, you know, hope you're happy. <laughs> and so there was, yeah, like I was very, very direct. And that was actually kind of helpful because it helped me to see a lot of the situation that was going on uh, in a kind of a very calculated manner. But when I saw the concussion specialist, he said like, I don't care if you were a terrible person before the concussion and a saint after, you always want to go back to what you were at baseline. So it was about healing and, and how to get back to that being emotional again, basically. <laughs> so, and then with the irritability, that was more because when you injure any part of your body, right? Your shoulder, if you blow your shoulder out, you sprain your ankle. Well, your body has like certain signs and ways to let you know that, that there's pain there. There's still injury, right? If you try and lift it overhead, you're going to get pinching. It's, oh, this hurts. You're going to get muscle soreness if you overuse it. But you don't get muscle soreness on your brain from overusing your brain. So you, what you get is you get wonky output, basically. So things that normally function correctly, like your eyesight or being able to filter sounds, being able to make eye contact with someone, you know, while I'm talking to them, while listening to what they're saying, while processing what they're saying, while formulating my response, all those things that you think that are like, basically you don't have to think about became overwhelming. And so I kind of describe it as like the way that you have your, your cell phone battery and you can start at hundred percent, but when it drops to, you know, to below 10%, certain functions and features stop working. Like, either the flash doesn't work anymore. And no matter what you do, if you're under 10%, that flash just won't, won't come on. And so it's kind of the same thing with the brain. What I liked about what you said was, you know, you have a difficult conversation or something frustrating and you go, that may take up that little bit that you have because your brain is so much more sensitive. Yeah. And so you drop from maybe 90 down to 60 much more quickly than you normally would. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about because you had the concussion diagnosis and clearly some very significant symptoms of concussion uh, that affected your emotions. You were hypersensitive to sound. Everything, every sense was sounded like it was hypersensitive. But that wasn't the whole story. There was more going on than that. And ultimately, you had another diagnosis from a mm -hmm. psychologist that you saw. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, well, that was the first concussion. And then the second one happened. That was in January recovered in April. And then I got another one in June because I swore if I ever had a concussion again, I was going to quit wrestling. And so when the second one happened, it was like, what the heck, you know, is there something wrong with my brain? Am I susceptible to this? But they said, no, the situation in which you got this concussion is so unrealistic. This is not 
realistic to sport. You were just in in a not good situation, basically in, in a wrestling practice with a with another grown coach, just like hitting hitting your neck over and over again. Um, and so that was like my brain registered that as traumatic, which is pretty normal because if you get like a brain injury from it, your brain's obviously going to think that that's traumatic. And consciously, I, I didn't really register any of that. And so I was, you know, just, I wasn't wrestling, but I was lifting with the strength coach and uh, working out with him. And in the middle of a workout one day, he just told me to go do something. And I started doing the reps in the middle. I just start bursting out crying, like, like as if someone died, but it didn't feel like I was crying the emotion. It just felt like someone was borrowing my body to cry. And it was so, so bizarre. And so I, I was so embarrassed. I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't, I, I'm not crying. I don't, I'm not sad. I don't, I don't know what's going on. I'm just trying to finish this lift. And uh, that kept happening. And so one of his colleagues actually um, had done, I think, two tours in Afghanistan and, and had PTSD and said, hey, this like you're displaying signs and symptoms of this. You should go get checked out. So I went back to the two psychologists that I was working with at the time to heal from the concussion and then like the, uh, I guess, the emotional um, after- aftermath of all that and the things that it entailed. And they both said, yeah, we we could see this. You should go get tested. And so I spoke to sports medicine and they said, we're going to send you to Utah to this facility for them to test you. And I met with this um, woman and she just asked me to start explaining what happened and the situation. And I just start detailing the story and I'm like crying and shaking and super afraid and fearful. And it was just so heightened, like, like I was in danger, but I, I wasn't in danger. And so she said, yeah, you know, you, you, you have it. You should do this inpatient program. So I, uh, they sent me from Colorado where I was doing the rehab at the training center. They sent me to Utah. And so my parents were back home in Maryland and I just kind of told them. And I mean, they knew something was definitely different and they were even concerned for me in India. And since then I just, um, and there wasn't really even enough time. Like by the time I, um, flew there and got assessed, I checked in that night. I remember I saw like multiple doctors and they would all, I would tell my story to all of them and kind of in the same way where like, once I started talking, it was like a flood. Like I, it, it wasn't just this one event in India. It was all these other things over the years that piled up with it. And it was, it was accumulative, but I don't know if it's that the event in India made my brain register everything else that had happened as bad, or if everything, if it was snowballing so bad. And then that was like the tipping point. Helen, I'm very sensitive about asking people about trauma. So I really, truly, what I said at the beginning, this is very important that you feel that you're okay to Mm -hmm. answer any questions I ask about this. So please, this is your personal medical information. You remember I I mentioned to you earlier about the straw that broke the camel's back phenomena, so lots of things happen. But usually to be diagnosed with PTSD, there's a trauma that happens where you think, I'm not going to survive this. I'm not going to live through this. Did you ever experience a trauma like that that was so life-threatening or uh, terrifying for you that you felt like you weren't going to make it through? In the reality of what the situation was, it no, there was nothing that was really like technically life-threatening, but the last concussion in 2019, my goal was to make it to the next day, every day for like four months. And I normally journal, I normally write down my emotions and it really felt like I'm a second away from not making it. And I just need to like get through the day. And from like sun up to sundown, that's 
my life was on pause. I mean, nobody was in my life. I didn't even share any of that with my parents because I knew they would want me to go back into a mental uh, institution. I knew that they'd want me to get on medication. And I was like, I'm, I'm open to it if that's what I really need. But I just, I feel like I got myself into this mess and I need to get out of it. I mean, it's interesting because like the mind body spirit connection is very strong. So whatever that last concussion was maybe tied in with all the psychological stuff from PTSD. It just like, I, I just remember I would go to bed at 12 and I'd wake up at 1am and I would just be wide awake, like, like manic. And I'd just be like, wow, like I'm happy. Like I love, like, it was just, but not joyful, just manic. And then a couple, like then 7am and then by like 12pm, it was completely different. And, uh, you know, I remember I would, I got an emotional support dog and I, you know, this dog was like, just like the thing that I had to look forward to was like potty training him or keeping him alive or keeping him fed. But then sometimes I'd have these breakdowns because I'd be wondering if my dog was breathing. My dog was sitting there and I would just like, I would not know that if I could take, it was so weird. Like, and it was crazy because, you know, during this time, it's like everyone's competing in the world championships the year before the Olympics. I'm just like, yeah, there's no way I'll ever be there. Like, like, I hope one day that I just get healthy enough where I can go home and see my parents and they don't think I'm crazy. But like, I mean, I really remember thinking like, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the next day. Like, I don't know if I'm a danger to myself and just being really on, on edge with that. Corey has talked very openly about his own experiences with suicidal ideation, real thoughts, active suicidal ideas at different times. And certainly, Corey, I don't want to speak for you, but your life has been touched by suicide in a significant way. There's a lot of people that are going to listen to this and have those thoughts right now. And I believe, and Corey has spoken about the fact there's always a path ahead. How did you get past that? I don't, I don't know if this is a good piece of advice. So I, I don't know if I want to share this, but I, when I, when I get to like such a breaking point, it's, it's almost like, um, like just this total surrender where I'm like, you know what you live and then you die. Like that's kind of like life in a nutshell, like you live and then you die. I'm like, what, what am I on earth for? Like, was it to wrestle? Is it to be a wife one day? Is it to have children? Like, I don't know. Cause right now I don't feel like I can do any of those things. Like, I really feel like I'm, I don't have anything to contribute to society or to myself. And I would just go on walks uh, with my dog. And I remember just kind of thinking this verse kept coming up and it just said, perhaps you were born for such a time as this. And I was like, well, if I have the ability to think, then I have the ability to contribute something to society. Even if it's like one thought a day, I just, so, okay, I'm just going to think this like, nice thought. I I hope something is going well in the world. I hope my parents are doing well. I I hope this goes well. And, and I would just kind of start trying to like reframe my mind in that and find like really simple things to be very, 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 very grateful for. And I'm like, you know what? It could be worse. Like if there's one thing that, that I can think that's positive, then, you know, I don't know. And just keep building off of that. I love that. Something else that that you had experienced was this training incident again in 2018 where you had a, I think you injured your shoulder. I heard this so many times from military members saying, I wish my leg had been blown off. I wish my arm had been injured so that someone could understand how I feel because I feel so broken on the inside. And that was what you had written is, finally, I've got something external that reflected how badly I felt on the inside. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Wow. Um, 
Yeah. So I got out of that mental hospital and I remember thinking I should just take take the rest of the year off. And then I remember thinking, I'll feel guilty if I do that. Uh, the world championships were in six weeks. And so I had to to try and I uh, flew to California and met a coach and explained to him my story. And he started working with me and I went to the world championships and I knew what some of my triggers were. And I had been doing therapy to, to kind of prepare for, for anything that came up, but really I, I shouldn't have wrestled. Like I just should not have been there. And so, um, on the mat, I had one thought come up in the second that I thought that, uh, my neck went limp and I couldn't hold my head up. And then when I went to push this girl out of bounds, my whole shoulder, like my rotator cuff tore off the bone, which was just crazy. My rotator cuff, Ugh. my bicep tendon, my labrum. And I just thought like, this is so bizarre. Cause I was kind of this, physically the strongest I had ever been in a very long time, if not ever, and had a great like weight cut strength training program, everything. I couldn't understand how this happened, but I also felt like you know, so that whole, like kind of the body keeps the score. And I, I just felt like that was my, my body finally reflecting everything that was going on in the inside. And I just couldn't hide anymore that there was so much hurt and brokenness inside and, and wrestling wasn't going to fix that. What I wondered about, because my experience with PTSD has been with military members and I see a lot of similarities, you know, they're tough, they're mm -hmm. pushing through, yeah. they're trained. You just keep going. You, you take it in the chin, you keep going. And I see that in all of the elite athletes that I've spoken to, this innate resilience, the strength, the toughness. We just keep going, we keep pushing. Is that a help or a hindrance, do you think, from an emotional perspective, from a mental health perspective? Mm. There's this other quote that I love and it's um, any strength overused is a weakness. So uh, I remember my dad at one point after the second situation that I got the concussion and said like, why didn't you stop? Like, why didn't you say something? Why, why did you let this, this coach do this? And I said, it's so ingrained in me to always prove myself. I'm the one always just having to prove myself, go through the workout, like don't question it. And I said, it's like 20 years of me being that way for this one incident for me to be different. It just didn't, it didn't register. And I felt like that was my healing journey of like, no, I, I, I need to, you need to know, like there's a time for everything and everything and it's time you need to know. Yeah. When to be tough. Um, but there's also something to be said about, you know, when to rest and relax and to heal and let people help you. And that's a toughness in and of itself. Cause it's really tough to do. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's tough to change and, and, and be something different, but if it's for your, your greatest good and your best healing, then like, you know, if you can find a way to do that, then that's good for you. So, yeah. Diane, you've had a lot of experience working with PTSD. And when Helen was talking about that concussion in India after what happened, would you have immediately thought PTSD? Because we often associate PTSD with veterans and war, but that's not really always the case, is it? No, it's not the case. And I think it's really important to point out that we don't know the whole story behind Helen's experience and any of the details of the diagnosis. So I think it's important that we speak sort of generally about trauma. And I'd like to make a couple of what I think are really important points that I've learned from treating a lot of people who have PTSD. It's important to note that trauma is deeply personal and subjective. So what is traumatic to me may not be traumatic to you, Corey. We don't know all the details here, but it's also important to know that when you experience something that feels traumatic, 
there's a lot of outcomes that can occur other than developing PTSD. We tend to think someone's had a traumatic event, they're going to get PTSD. But most people recover from a traumatic event without any mental illness. For the people who do struggle with mental illness, they could develop depression, substance misuse, or PTSD, or other symptoms like anxiety. So there's no direct line. But it's really important to understand that the trauma associated with developing PTSD has to be very severe. You think you're going to die. You think that there's a risk that you're going to be very seriously injured. And then you have to have a constellation of symptoms that go along with that. You have to have re-experiencing or intrusive memories. You have to have avoidance of everything that reminds you of that event, hypervigilance or hyperarousal, as well as changes in your mood and how you're thinking, how you're feeling. So can you fully recover from PTSD? Is it possible for a person to get through that and come out the other side? Absolutely. You can recover from PTSD. However, it's difficult. It's a really, really challenging disorder to overcome because it gets into every part of your life. It affects your ability to function in your relationships, at work, at home. It affects your mood. It makes you feel anxious. It impacts your sleep. So you can see that it kind of invades your life. And without really early, good, effective, supportive treatment, people often can struggle for years with it. So what would be a treatment that somebody could do? Is it do you have to go to a specialist? Do you have to go to somebody that really knows what they're doing? What is something someone can do out there for PTSD? Well, the first thing is to get the right diagnosis, and that starts with going to your family doctor, your nurse practitioner, telling them that you've had this traumatic event, this issue that's happened to you, a trauma that's happened that you you don't feel that you're able to get over. And then they can help to make sure that you get to the right person to get the appropriate diagnosis. Do you have PTSD or not? And also determine then, if you do have the diagnosis, what the right treatment is. Often, talk therapy, a critical part of recovering from PTSD. Some people require medication. Some people require a combination of both. It would have made a lot of sense for Helen to leave wrestling behind after the concussion, the challenges with her mental health, the shoulder injury. She had already reached the top. She proved she was the best in the world. I was laying on my couch one day, and I was just trying to rest all day, basically do nothing. And I remember thinking, I should probably retire, and it's not worth it to come back. And is another gold medal really going to be that much different? And I just felt like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I can do that. And I just remember having this thought like, but this is not how I thought it was going to be. Like, I didn't, I, I didn't think that I was going to feel this way. I, I didn't like the person that I was. And I, and I thought that um, pursuing sport and pursuing excellence would help shape your character in a way that you liked who you became. And I felt like I'm, I don't have confidence and I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life telling my kids that, oh, I think I needed this coach to win or I needed this to win. And I was like, that's not the purpose of sport. Like, there's no way that these were the lessons I was supposed to take from this. And so I just felt like I really want to come back and I just want to pursue it the way I think it's supposed to be done. And, and, I, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it should only be this one way or maybe I won't find success, but I won't know if I don't try. And so pursuing Tokyo was just such a beautiful experience because 
I, I got to learn the lessons that I wanted and I love the way that I pursue it, which is why I'm still wrestling because it's fun and it's enjoyable. And I love the people I'm around and I love uh, the memories I have. And I love getting to hang out with teammates and just, I don't know, you know, in Rio, I was so laser focused. I was, you know, cutting everyone out, cutting the world out. And that was great. You know, maybe, maybe that's what I need to win. And maybe I need to show myself that I, I could do that. I could be that. But this time around, I was like, I want every memory with teammates and I want to enjoy things and get out of my room and eat the little bit of chocolate if I want, like, you know, and, and I loved every, I loved it. Like I loved every second of it. When I was about to retire, the same thing. I went out on the ice and I just tried to soak it in. And that's when I played my best. Yeah. And I think when you're, I think that comes with age too. I don't think you can be like that when you're younger. I don't think that's a lesson learned. Yeah. Until it faces you that this is going to end one day. Yeah. Um, and I want to enjoy every moment I can. Is that the lesson you learned? Yeah, definitely. I, I would agree with that. I, I, uh, I think I wrestled so great in Tokyo. Really, I, I was so nervous. I still really wasn't like, as healthy, well, I was healthy, but like stuff with my wrestling hadn't fully come back yet, like with timing and, and with mat awareness. Like I just didn't have any matches or enough experiences before. But I remember that day before it was like, this is going to be my last tournament ever. Like, man, I, I don't want any, you know, I just want a good memory. <laughs> like, let's just go out with a bang. With the gold medal, it's great to have, but it's like, realistically, it just sits in a metal case. I'm not actually doing anything with it. But with the things that I learned through sport and through that experience, I do stuff with that every day. Like I show up, you know, to the world with with the things that I've learned in, in sport. So Helen, did you get your personality back? Do you feel like that personality, that effervescent, goofy, silly self that has always been you, that felt like it was lost during the concussions and all the challenges that you face, do you feel like you're back to yourself again? I I do. I feel like I got all that back. I'm goofy. I'm silly. I wake up with like joy and excitement for the world. It's not like fear or negativity. Um, but I think that there's some things that have been changed forever that just aren't the same, but they're not necessarily bad things. Like I think my ability to, to read people and to just close off uh, maybe a bit more quickly on things. Just, it just kind of does it, but I'm aware of it and I'm aware that I can choose otherwise. I just, I don't, I don't know. Cause I don't, you know, I don't feel that I need to, but I can get on a plane. I can fly places. I can talk to, to friends. You know, I just did a training camp in Greece with a Japanese teammate and a Greek teammate and a friend from America. And that was a lot of just responsibility on me to organize it and run it. And all these things I wouldn't have been able to just like handle um, was just really fun, super, super easy for me to do. So I, I do think I'm, I'm back to myself for the most part. Helen, your story is incredible. I am inspired by you. I think you're a wonderful athlete. Um, and it's just really cool to sit here and, and listen to everything you've done. What would you tell a parent or an athlete? Because there's other people going through the same thing you went through right now. And you're still work to do for you, I'm sure, and you still have to be, um, you know, on top of it. But what would you tell a parent or an athlete that's in the middle of what you went through today, if you could speak to one? I would say to a parent or athlete that that's going through concussions, I I would definitely tell them. Well, one, just to hold on to hope and to to believe that you can fully heal. They told me I was never going to heal from PTSD, and that might be true. I think that I am. And then, you know, maybe sometimes when your threat bucket is like pushed to the limit and you haven't eaten or sleep and whatever, maybe something 
you know, flares up. But I, I personally want to live my life believing that I can fully heal from anything. That way I give it the space too, and just keep, keep trying things, you know, um, whether it's like therapy or hyperbaric chamber, like changing your diet. I, I cut out coffee two years ago just to see if it would affect my mental health. And I just haven't gone back to it since. And, and I thought that it did, even if it was like 2% or 5%, but there's, there's a lot out there. And for concussions, I, I would really recommend fascial counter strain. It's a, a FCS. So uh, that's a really good treatment that, that, and for PTSD that made such a, such a difference. Um, and I also, so one more thing that I would share is that I didn't feel like one thing fixed everything, but I feel like healing is a journey and you just do all these things and you just keep accumulating more and more healing experiences or modalities. And then I think you start to see like, oh, I, I got pieced back together. Like I'm, I'm whole. And, um, and I, I live, I believe that that's possible for, for anyone. And I don't mean to be unrealistic or to minimize anything that anyone's going through. I know there's a lot worse cases than mine out there and, and with brain injuries, um, as well, but I, I just want to believe that for, for people. Cause I, I want to hold on to hope. You said something about, in a, in a way about, you know, giving back a little bit and helping others. Is that something that maybe you've experienced as well that help having gratitude, helping others? Is that something that you experienced? Yeah, definitely. I, I think anytime that you are giving, you get something out of it. Like it, it, it fills your soul. And there's a, there's actually a piece of advice that I got from, from someone. Cause you know, I was, I was mad at what happened. I was mad at what I had to go through and I, I wanted to be angry and blame things. And I, I just wanted to hold on to anger for a while. And I remember this, uh, this person said, you know, that there's levels to healing and, and one day, you know, you think that you've reached this level and one day there's just going to be a new level. And, and I said, and one of that is going to be that when you can help someone go through like what you went through, um, that's going to be a, an added level to, to your healing and, and you'll, you'll find purpose in that. And I didn't understand that at the time when I was in the healing process, but, but now I, I get it a lot more. And so I definitely think, um, giving back and, and helping others. And I think just sharing our, our stories because I think stories are so critical to culture and to, to humans. And, um, one, like just your, your story being heard and, you know, two hearing someone else's because that helps you. I believe the meaning of life now is helping others. I, re- I really do. I don't know what it is, but for me, that's, that's what it is. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So it's, I, I, um, I was just in Greece and I uh, was volunteering at a refugee camp, which I knew that I always wanted to do. And, but I also knew that I was coming back to wrestling and, you know, you feel like you're balancing like the selfish athlete life versus, you know, doing something else, but just my experiences with that and the trauma that the women, uh, the, the people have gone through is, I mean, the stories that you hear, it's like horrific and the things that they're having to endure. And, um, you know, just to go there. And I brought that, that same ESA dog that is now just more of my, my pet and my best friend. Um, but I brought him and just all the kids want to hold him. All the women want to hold him. And they just like, you know, I'd always look over and someone's passing him along or they all, they all want him. And, you know, just to see like, I don't know, a dog bring people like, I don't know, so much joy in that, in that one moment. And Stavros, the manager of the, of when we've been together, the, the nonprofit organization, you know, he said like, watch, watch these women come in and they, they don't have like, look at their faces. They're like sunken in, they're hurting and then watch them leave, you know, just from tea time or the English lesson or the yoga class or the music lesson. Like if anything we can do, can put a smile on their face, then we've done a good job for today. So he was really um, inspiring for me and, and taught me a lot with, with that project. So 
What would you tell your 15-year-old self, Helen at 15 and Helen at 30? What, what are you going to tell her? God, I don't know. Um, I would say uh, um, figure out who you are and, and how you want to be at the, at the end of your sporting career and kind of work backwards from there, not like what you want to win at the end of your sporting career and work backwards from there. I tell this, I've said this before that as a professional athlete, you have your wrestling, you know, you have your sport coach, you have your strength coach, you have your nutritionist, you have your sports psych, you, you have all these things, but no one's preparing you for after the medal, after the tournament, after the career. And, um, so then it's like, people are surprised when an athlete wins and they're, they're a jerk or they're like super conceited. I'm like, well, yeah, we, we got the job done. We just, we just taught them how to win. Like we, were we shaping these other, you know, these other aspects of their character. And I think I would tell my 15 year old self, like sport is for the purpose of building character and making a healthy and good individual to contribute to society. That should be the purpose of sport. If everyone had that goal in mind, yeah, the medals would still happen, but like, it would be an even better, like we'd be good, good to go. I think so. I don't know. I'm not explaining that well, but I thought you did it perfectly and beautifully. Actually, Helen, you have had so many achievements, two Olympic medals, world champion. But I have no idea what you're about to say as an answer to this question. What was your to date? And I know you're still a very young woman. Greatest achievement. I think my, I'd say my greatest achievement is uh, coming back to sport and, um, and forgiving. Like, I think that's the hardest thing to do. (laughs) I think that was harder than, than the gold medal and everything combined. And I think forgiveness is the, really the catalyst for healing. It's so valuable. I know religious texts say, you know, you must forgive and, uh, but it's really when you, when you truly experience it and you understand it, you'll realize like, oh yeah, there, there really shouldn't be any other option because it, it frees yourself and it allows you to heal and to move on and to grow and to evolve. And uh, yeah, I, I couldn't imagine like life without the, that or just still being like stuck or in brokenness. I love that. I think that anger and resentment rots the vessel it's in. So mm-hmm. I forgive for myself. It is truly freeing. I agree. Just some great things, gratitude, forgiveness. And it's they're so cliche in life, I think, but they're true. Right? We all use them. Oh, I've got gratitude today. Or I'll have forgiveness. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the truth. And, um, you know, I tell everybody, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for sharing your story with us. It's powerful, um, Helen. It really, really. is. And, uh, yeah. No, I'm just truly grateful for your openness and your story is inspirational because I know that you were in a really, really difficult spot for an extended period and you found your way back. And I just, I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. And and for like just talking about concussions and PTSD because... It's happening to people, and yeah, when we share our stories, it helps. And you guys created such a safe space for me to do that, and and it was a really great conversation. I, I appreciate with what you shared about your experiences as well. 